going to get a little introspective. We're going to take a look inward. We're going to examine ourselves, examine the state of conservatism, the state of the Republican Party. This moment in right-wing politics, and we're going to try to be honest about it. We're going to try to be reflective, and we're going to try to ask a question that that the rest of the world, that the left in particular, doesn't really allow us to ask with any degree of honesty. And, you know, perhaps I need to start off by explaining what I mean by that. You know, when you're, when you're confronted, when you're confronted by accusations, when you're confronted by uncomfortable, when you're called out on the carpet for something that you've done or something that you've said, uh, or, or some, some conduct that you've engaged in. And it's, it's done in a very, a very confrontational manner. It puts you back on your heels and you tend to get defensive. And when you're defensive, you're closed off. And when you're closed off, you're not going to tend to acknowledge any degree of truth that may lie within the core of the accusation. Right. And this is, this is that presents an impasse where if there is actually a, a conflict to be resolved, or if there is actually a problem to be solved, you can't do the work necessary to resolve it or solve it because you're locked into this defensive state. And there's a sense or degree to which I feel like that condition, that condition of being, oh, shall we say, on, on a defensive stance, trying to come up with a particular word for it. It's on the tip of my tongue, but it's not popping in, into my mind just yet. But that con- condition of being, you know, feeling like you're under attack is a, a pretty decent general description of how conservatives, particularly in the Trump era, particularly now, and, and in the context of the resistance, in the context of you know the way the left is reacting to Donald Trump, are locked into this mode of everything's defensive, everything is a an effort to to shield ourselves to hunker down to pull ourselves within the turtle shell to to circle the wagons and protect ourselves from what we perceive to be the assault from all sides and that's not a very healthy mental space in which to live and it prevents us from taking a look at things that perhaps we should take a look at and i'm going to i'm going to dare to venture into these areas tonight. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here nine to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. We had a lot of fun the past couple of days complaining about the left and just marveling at the the profound stupidity that's been expressed by the likes of DFL endorsed candidate for governor Aaron Murphy, in response to the release of body cam footage of the police shooting of Thurman uh, Blevins. And, you know, that's, man, it's all coming back to me last night. If you didn't catch the show last night, do a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. Check it out. It was a good time. We had a lot of fun. We're gonna we're gonna replay it for you guys coming up here on uh, on Monday. I'm gonna be off attending to municipal duties, so you'll get another chance to hear it. 
But man, Aaron Murphy was just absolutely maddening. And, you know, shows like that are easy. Shows like that are fun and they're entertaining and I enjoy doing them. Tonight's going to be more difficult. It's going to be more difficult for me and potentially more difficult for you because rather than, you know, circle around an area that we all agree on and that's relatively non threatening because we're directing our criticism outward to somebody else. Tonight, I want to turn our gaze, our critical gaze on ourselves and ask some potentially uncomfortable questions. And, you know, in in keeping with the theme of Thurman Blevins and uh, many other things that have been going on in the news lately, this has to do with race. This has to do with race. I have some questions for my fellow Republicans, my fellow conservatives, and, and in particular, those who are particularly excited about MAGA and making America great and Donald Trump and the the turn that the Republican Party has taken and that conservatism has taken. Now, before I dive into this, and we're going to use as a as a tool for this exploration a piece by Ezra Klein over at Vox called White Threat in a Browning America, which <laughs> if if you hear that and you think to yourself, what does that even mean? I, I was right there with you. You have to you have to get into it before you realize what it is that he's actually talking about. But basically what he does is he goes through and and draws this picture of politics through the prism of race. And you know, before you again get defensive and shut down and say, Oh, here we go, right? I want I want you to make the attempt. I'm gonna ask you to make the attempt to open yourself up to the possibility that there's a kernel of truth in what Ezra Klein is talking about here. And just to give you some background for this, you know, I, as many of you know, I'm of mixed origin racially. My dad's black. My mom's white. Uh, I'm in a interracial marriage. I've, you know, been, been black my whole life, as it turns out. It's something you, something you're born with and you stay with. So you mean your, your dad was black and your mom was white and you just happened to be black. That's right. I just happened oh, to be. Just happens to be. That's how that that's, works. That's how that works. And so, you know, I have uh, a great deal of experience with both being black and being conservative because I've always been both. You know, as long as I've been politically aware, I've been conservative and uh, and I was born black and I've stayed that way, you know, surprisingly. There's no there's been no Rachel Dozell-esque transracialism going on uh, in my life. And, you know, historically there was never there's never been any conflict between these two things. It's made other people uncomfortable. In fact, part of the reason why I'm here right now talking to you over this very air is because of how my my identity as a black Tea Partier confounded Ron Rosenbaum. You may recall Ron Rosenbaum. He had a show, uh, I believe it was Holding Court, here on the weekends on this station on Saturdays. And I ran into him at a, a studio event. They used to have these events called Cocktails and Conversations. And I and I went there and I met him and Sue Jeffers actually introduced us and we got to talk and he's like you're a tea partier and he was just mesmerized by the idea that a black man could be a tea partier and so it's been a, it was my conservatism and my blackness have been a source of confusion for other people but they've never been a source of confusion for me it's always made perfect sense to me and I've never had any any sense of conflict or you know need to reconcile or some sort of dissonance between these two parts of my identity i've been perfectly comfortable with it until until 2016 2016 was the first year in my life 
that I suddenly felt a dissonance, a discomfort between these two different aspects of my identity, my blackness and my conservatism. And it was in response to what I saw as a, a characteristic, an undercurrent, if you will, of the ascendancy of Donald Trump. And I don't want to make this conversation tonight about Donald Trump because it's really not. I mean, that's one of the things that I think we need to take away from this piece that Ezra Klein writes over a box. It's not about Donald Trump. It's about the rest of us. It's about everybody else. It's not a, Donald Trump is just a manifestation. He's, if, it, if it hadn't been him, it would have been somebody else. You know, part of the point of what Ezra Klein tries to get across is that the, what, what Trump did is he, he did what he always does. He met a market demand. This, there was a market demand that, was, that had developed in the Obama years for what Trump brought to the table. And part of, part of my experience was that I was completely out of tune with the fact that this demand existed. Because during the years that I was in the Tea Party, you know, basically Obama's two terms. To my mind, and because I was taking the things that I was hearing at face value, the movement, the conservative movement, the, the Republican effort to, to combat what the Obama administration was doing, what the left was doing under Barack Obama, was fueled by reverence for the Constitution, uh, reverence for individual rights, the desire to manifest free markets and, and human freedom, and to, to, to recognize the, the prosperity and the, the peace and the relationship and the, the, the joy that is made possible through liberty and through the, the preservation of individual liberties. Because that's what everybody was preaching. That's what everybody was talking about. That's what the, the, the Tea Party speakers were speaking to and candidates were running on was this optimistic vision of what the, the world could look like if we rediscovered the values that the founding generation instilled and codified in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, and what have you. But then 2016 comes along, Donald Trump comes on the stage, and this new kind of tone and tenor began to, to take dominance. And it was unquestionably... And very disturbingly, racial in its sense, racial in its tone. And, you know, for, for me in particular, again, you know, like I say, never had, a, never had any kind of perceived dissonance between being black and being a conservative. But suddenly I did, because here's this group of people called the alt-right who, you know, they describe themselves as white nationalists. You know, they, they deny white supremacists, even though that's clearly what they are. But they'll describe themselves as white nationalists. And their their whole spiel was, well, we need to do something about the fact that they believe in white genocide. We need to do something in order to to uh, quell the rise of non-white people in this country. And, and uh, we need to shut down immigration and, and this, that, and the other thing. And they loved Donald Trump, which wouldn't be a problem because, you know, you can't a guy can't choose who his supporters are, who likes him. But the problem came in that Donald Trump's response to these guys was, eh, okay, whatever. Uh, you know, it's no big deal. Which, you know, to me, the, the only correct answer to somebody like that, somebody who identifies as a white nationalist saying, 
you're my guy to a politician, the only correct answer is I categorically refute them. They, I, I want nothing to do with them. I, I do have no desire to be supported by them. I categorically condemn them. Right, like that. That's the only correct answer, and it should be immediate and knee jerk, and should require no thinking. Right, like it's just it's it should be automatic. And the fact that it wasn't sent off alarm bells in my head and my heart, and caused me to question what was happening and why it was happening, and you know, and as Trump gained steam, and I found people around me who I'd been associated with for years getting on board the train and i knew that they weren't racist right because I've, I've known them all these years and they've known me and we've had good relationships i was presented with this this puzzle that i was not able to immediately solve of how do you explain this how do you explain that out of the tea party which i thought was about constitutionally limited government free markets you know individual liberty Fiscal responsibility, because those are the things that were literally, those were literally the planks that were put up on the websites for Tea Party groups. I thought it was about all that, and now all of a sudden we're talking about how important it is to keep Mexicans out, and how important it is to ban all Muslims, and how important it is to take back the culture, whatever that means, and to make America great again, whatever that means. Where is this coming from? What does it mean? Ezra Klein has an answer or some strong indications of an answer. We'll get into it when we return. And I want to hear from you on this. I want to hear an answer to, here's my question for you. And I'm looking for sincere answers and you can be as honest as you want to be. Are you, what, let, let me think about how to phrase this. We'll, I'll, I'll think about how to phrase it and then we'll come back with it. But I want to ask your opinion on the role that race plays in your political thinking. And I know your, your instinctive answer is going to be say, well, it doesn't. I'm colorblind. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll accept that for five minutes. And after five minutes, we're going to reconvene, and I'm going to ask the question again, and you can think about giving me a real answer. All right, 651-989-5855, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Sometimes I feel like I am drunk behind the wheel. All right, I, I figured out a way to ask this question. I figured out a way to ask it, because this is, this is really what the, coming out of the Ezra Klein piece that we're about to dive into here, this really is the 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 way to present or or uh, premise what it is that I want to get after here tonight in our introspective view of conservatism, the state of conservatism, the the state of the Republican Party, and how we think and feel and, and behave around issues of race. The question is this: Does the demographic, well, I don't want to ask it that way because it's yes or no. How, how does the demographic shifts that are taking place in the United States of America make you feel? Like the, the, the objective fact that there are more non-white people being born 
than there are white people being born. The objective fact that there is this browning of America that is taking place, does that make you feel uncomfortable? And if so, why? And what do you feel, if anything, needs to be done about it? These are honest, sincere questions that I'm asking because, and I never would have asked them before. Like before 2016, this this wouldn't even have been on my radar. I never even would have thought that this is something we needed to spend any amount of time talking about because I took people at their word that they were that they genuinely were colorblind, that they didn't care about race. But there are a lot of indications, and we'll get into them here in this piece at Vox. There are a lot of things to, to point that in spite of what people claim and in spite of what people say, that a certain, shall we say, racial apprehension about demographic changes is having an effect upon our politics. Before we get into the piece at Vox, let's take a couple of your phone calls. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Let's start with Mike in Coon Rapids. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yep. Um, so I'm uh, 39 years old. I grew up in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Okay, I grew up like south, southeast Minneapolis. Um, growing up, I think I had more friends of minorities than I did white friends. I, I myself am white. Mm-hmm. So I've never, I never really honestly understood racism. I mean, I heard of it. Right. But I... I even even when I was in my twenties one time I was downtown Minneapolis delivering I did food service mm-hmm. and this this guy um, I he ordered he ordered way too many watermelons than he, he attended on ordering for some catering thing and I was like hey well you know because I have to bring him back and he's like oh you know I was like well, just take him home for the kids or whatever and he was Mexican and he yelled at me and says what do you think I'm my n and I hey, I was dumbfounded on what he was talking about mm-hmm. I, I had to, I, I it took people later to explain to me what he was talking about. Right, right, yeah. I, not, now I'm married to a Mexican-American woman, mm-hmm. and, well, actually, she, she's Mexican-American. It's a really technical situation, but she happens to have kids that are illegal Mexican. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's, it's a weird immigration busted system rule. So I've never considered myself to be racist. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until 2016, after Trump was in, that everyone's calling me a white man who supports Trump pretty much a racist. Mm-hmm. And after getting into social media and watching YouTube videos and everything else, mm-hmm. on, honestly, in the last year or two, I'm beginning to feel more racist than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Because people are stepping on my toes telling me who I'm not. Right, right. And, right, and, I'm, and, and it's like, well, you want to see, you know, it's kind of bubbling something inside of me, which I think sure. is what the globalists are trying to bring up. Uh-huh. But long story short, um, Browning, you know, it, it's true. White people are mixing with more black people and more Latinos and whatever, and it, the cult, it, it's, it's, the minorities are growing. The uh-huh. Latinos, everything else, and honestly, right. I think from the standpoint of they're beautiful people that aren't just, you know, pure white, blonde hair, blue eyes. Right. People are beautiful. But then again, in my own white brain, I think about, like, what's going on in South Africa. Sure. Okay. Sure. Think about on all of Africa. You show me one country on the face of the earth that's civilized that was not built by some Europeans, and and I think about is there some genetic something genetic in people's brains? Look at South America. It the entire place is pretty much a communist, you know, place that people starve. 
Mm-hmm. There's something genetically in people's brains, or, or what, where they can't operate a civilized society. And then what's going on with right now with people trying to tear down the Constitution, and they're just blindly following a, a walk into Marxism, is scaring the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to, like, and, I, and to answer your question, the solution, of course, is not, you know, sterilizing black people or whatever. What it is is we need the, the, the people like us that believe in the Constitution to take back over our education system, mm-hmm. put it back in schools, because you'd be amazed at how many kids from the inner city, like this, this hashtag walk away movement, mm-hmm. once they get educated, they believe and understand the Constitution as well as I do. Sure. A lot of them don't even realize that the Democrats are the ones that founded the racist parties and, and the Civil War mm-hmm. and the KKK and just all the stuff that was going on. Yeah. A lot, Frederick Douglass, uh, Douglass, abolitionists, those that followed, uh, you know... I take uh, I take your meaning, Mike. I do need to get some other right. calls tonight, and I appreciate your your honesty and and your uh, sharing of of truly, obviously, personal um, feelings and and anecdotes. And look, I I'm the same age as Mike, and my experience is in some ways very similar. In that, I, when I look back upon being a kid growing up in the '80s and '90s. Race, racial issues and racism as a concept, like racism was, was like something out of a history book to me growing up. It was not something that was part of my lived experience. It was, it was like something from, from a story on TV. I mean, that's, that was my experience with it. My experience with racism was in watching television and watching movies. You know, the concept of, of living in a world where that that type of thinking was taken seriously by anyone seemed utterly and completely absurd to me and i do feel and we, and as we get into talking about this as the evening goes on maybe we'll trip upon some of the answers as to why but i feel as though there's been a a regression it certainly seems as though there's been a regression in terms of both race relations and uh, certainly philosophical underpinnings of our culture and we've we've kind of backslid in some major ways into a, a a type of grouping of each other and categorization of each other that we seemed to have been largely getting over in the 80s and the 90s and suddenly we find ourselves right back to the 60s which is an odd place to find ourselves slipping back to i don't know why we would regress in that manner We'll talk to Sean in St. Paul and Greg in Minneapolis when we return. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk. Doc. A little bit different tone to the show tonight. We're being introspective. We're looking inward. We're examining ourselves, examining conservatism and, you know, this particular moment in history. And, you know, asking the question that I'm seeking sincere answers to of whether or not and to what extent the demographic shifts in this country concern you. Are you concerned by the fact that whites are, I was going to say slowly but surely, but it ain't that slow, are becoming a minority in the United States? Is that a problem for you? And if so, why? Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming on TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. 651-989-5855 if you want to 
sail into these choppy waters. Brad Omlin taking those calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Sean in St. Paul. Thanks for holding through the break. Sean, how's it going? Hi, Walter. Uh, pretty good. Uh, yeah, I have to say that I really enjoy your show. I'm a I'm a truck driver. I listen to you every night. Uh, you're one of the few people that actually had your head on straight, which I enjoy. I appreciate that. Um, I grew up on a carnival, meeting thousands and thousands of people, and got a very different perspective of of life with with. You know, we employed all kinds of races and all different kinds of people and, you know, from the bottom of the barrel to the richest of the rich, kind of. And one guy told me a long time ago, he says, um, you know, racism and and that is nothing more than, than ignorance in the way of, like, you... You've never walked a mile in my shoes. I've never walked a mile in your shoes. You could never say what I go through. I could never say what you go through type of thing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was, he said, the other half of it is is laziness, for lack of a better word. Like, So, you know, if I go to get a job and there's a particular race, person that that's giving me the job well he didn't give me the job because i'm white or i didn't get the job because i'm black or whatever it's an easy explanation for things okay so um we were um we're gonna hire this guy and he was um he was uh his background check didn't come back okay right and he was you know and i said you know i i can't hire you because of your background, you know, and he said, no, you just ain't going to hire me because I'm black. And I said, no, I had, you know, I don't care, you know, what color you are. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, and in the, in the same hand where, you know, I'll go and do a job um, for somebody, you know, and, and uh, they were, let's see, how can I explain this? Um so I went and did a job with this guy. Uh, I used to own a garage door company, and uh, you know I charged him the money. He said, "No, you're just charging me that because because of my race." And I said, "No, it's you know it's whatever you know." And and it it feels like all these situations that white people deal with, you know, where I'm not trying to be a racist, but you're forcing me into this box where I'm starting to to not. There's a little bit of a, what what I hear you saying is is similar to what Mike was saying last segment is that there's a little bit of a a Pavlovian response taking place where if, if you, if you ring that bell enough of you're a racist, you're a racist, you're a racist, you're a racist, there's a certain degree to which you kind of start becoming a racist. Right. And that's, you know, and, and like I said, being, we're, you know, growing up on a carnival, I mean, we literally had so many different people, and I enjoy all races. I, I don't care, you know, people are people to me, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, um, just like with your show, you know, I enjoy your show. It's one of my favorite shows, and, and you know, if, if I was a true racist, I would right. never listen to you, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. I I appreciate the call, Sean. I appreciate you holding so long to share your thoughts. Let's go to Greg in Minneapolis, who's also been holding for quite some time. Appreciate you joining us. 
Hi, Walter, and thank you for having me on tonight. Yep. Um, thank you for your question. It's a great question, and I think it's one that many of us, when we went to the ballot box this year, mm-hmm. we had to ask ourselves, going up to that date, knowing who we're voting for, you know, we were voting for Trump. Mm-hmm. And some of the things we heard about him, does that reflect on me as a racist? And like your previous two callers, you know, I tend to think of myself as a colorblind person, mm-hmm. but when we go introspective, and it's a great question, who am I voting for? Is this the guy who just shrugged off everything in Charlotte? Is this the guy who went rent out to African Americans back in the 60s and 70s? Mm. Do I feel okay voting for this guy? And I had to really look at the alternative, what we had and which direction we're going as a country, Mm -hmm. and ask myself, Will he do more for our country, and that includes everybody, mm-hmm. every race, as opposed to his opponent at the time, who I don't believe really cared. Mm-hmm. So does he have some questionable background issues? Yes. Did I feel he was going to do better for our country and for our, my neighbors, for my brothers, for my sisters, for everybody out here? And I came to the conclusion, yes. But I did have to ask myself, so I think it's a great question that you presented to each and every one of us tonight. I appreciate your thoughts, Greg. I appreciate you staying on the line in order to share them. Let's go to our regular caller, Mike in Farmington. How are you doing tonight? Hey, good evening, Walter. Good. Thanks for taking my call. Anytime. Um, have you heard of the Frankfurt School? I have, yes. Okay. And uh, I don't want to try to be all over the place, but... What I've seen done here, it seems like over time, is the progressive left has used the black community to drive a wedge into the country and create this victimhood and this racism. And it's last night I was listening to the program, and I thought every opportunity they could with Barack Obama, they tried to foment hatred and division. I'm sure a lot of these horrible things that happened with Michael Brown and these have happened before, but now they have, they got much more attention and they really raised the stakes with race. Uh, the other thing I've been seeing happening is interesting is what's been going on in Europe where Western culture or European culture almost seems to be pushed back and Lauren Southern had an interesting comment on that because her and Stephen Molnu have been traveling around and giving talks about what's going on where there's a crisis of values in Western civilization. Like, we don't know who we are. Mm-hmm. If you take the example of Islam, they know exactly who right. they are right, 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 and what they're out to accomplish. Right. Now, I also saw an interesting exchange with Gavin McInnes and... Uh, Haley Marie, there was a back and forth about feminism, and she was critical. And we've seen this narrative play out over and over again. Uh, white countries, white men, America sucks. We hate, we hate these people, and we've done wrong. And Gavin McGinnis asked her, he says, well, who has a better system than we do here? So you're, you're hitting upon something, and perhaps unintentionally, that, were, that I think is worthy of exploration. And that's the idea, you know, specifically when you talk about how European cultures are lacking a sense of cohesive identity. 
and are therefore easily displaced and shoved aside, sometimes literally. Those values are being abandoned. They're allowing, you know, groups to come in, and people can worship how they like, but when you have enclaves of people where they basically have no-go zones, I mean, that's maybe an extreme example, but it seems like if you are a white person, you can't, it's like almost like you cannot celebrate that. Everything else has is able to be celebrated. But mm. if you're white and you try to celebrate any of that, you are pounded right down into the ground. Mm. I don't think that's necessarily true. Because, um, like, saying something, or saying a phrase like white power or white pride is obviously racist because it's, it's just as racist. It's just because, because I am white that, that I have power, which is not inherently true. You can still celebrate your culture. You can still celebrate who you are. Think of Oktoberfest that we go to and, you know, going to a Ludafisk dinner at a Lutheran church. Those are celebrations of who you are. Those are celebrations of your culture. And nobody is poo-pooing those. Well, let me ask you this question. What about all these programs that did not allow? Because if you were white, you, you weren't given maybe the first shot because of something called affirmative action. Would that be? Does, is that a form of racism? Well, it's a, it's certainly a form of discrimination, of race based discrimination. And uh, so, what, what's your what point are you building off from? Well, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm trying to be uh, 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 stir things up a little bit mm -hmm. because it seems like if you want to put that forward. You're, that is pushed down right away. You, you, you're not allowed really to celebrate that. Or you, you know, I, you're not allowed to criticize the concept of affirmative action. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. But if you want to celebrate your, your white culture, uh -huh. or if diversity is always, it seems to be always celebrated. That just seems to be the climate these days. That uh -huh. all of those things are celebrated, but uh, you know, up is down and back is forward. It's almost as if there's no moral barometer anymore. And, again, I go back to what I, I saw and I've seen in Europe and what's going on, where so, those okay, cultures so and I, our values have been, uh, have been weakened, and now, you know, they're, they're having much difficulty. I mean, look what happened to Tommy Robinson. If you follow I, that I hear you. Story, I hear you. you know. I don't want to get too far off into the weeds, though. And I've been listening attentively, trying to ascertain, trying to draw out, you know, these little threads that we can pull on in this discussion but here, here's my question for you because i think that there's there's two different things going on here one is a legitimate cultural battle there's no question that we're in a culture war and there's no question that western values the values that are fundamental to western civilization the libertarian values upon which this nation was founded are under withering assault and that that battle is being lost it absolutely is it's being displaced by very ancient authoritarian ideas. But my question is, do, do you perceive a link between that, the, the, the front of that culture war and the color of people? Because it's it, sometimes it sounds like, and I'm not talking about you specifically, Mike, but sometimes when I listen to people talk about it, it sounds like when they say we're losing the culture, they mean there's fewer people who look like me. No, I, I wouldn't get hung up on that. I would think more about 
the values of, you know, the Judeo-Christian world and, you know, a republic like what we're supposed to have and liberty, uh, liberty here in this country and being able to pursue that. But I think there's something more sinister going on where I think certain people are trying to, uh, I see it in Europe with the EU where they're trying to import more people. So I think the, the play is to gain control. Mm-hmm. Who can we more easily control? Mm. All right. Well, that's interesting. I appreciate the call, last, Mike, as always. The point I'd like to make is, Real quick. I mean, look what happened. I can't believe what's going on in South Africa. I mean, oh, that's yeah. it's, absolutely it's insane. insane. It's insane. And I, I appreciate it, Mike. I'll just describe for people real quick. We talked about it last night. In South Africa, the government is seizing the farms of white people to redistribute it to blacks. I mean, it's it's Nazi-level stuff. And Nazi comparisons are a dime a dozen in the political discourse. This literally is what the Nazis did. Based upon your racial identity, based upon your, your demographics, you don't have any rights. You're a second-class citizen, and we can take your stuff and give it to, to the superior race. That's taking place in South Africa today in the year 2018. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Perhaps the uh, the modern day Warshak test is the contents of your Twitter newsfeed. I was just kind of scrolling through mine during the break, and apparently I'm all about politics and Star Trek because that's what virtually every post that I was able to skim through was about either one of those two things. Which uh, you know I have more diverse interests than either of those things, but uh, apparently my tweet behavior says otherwise. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. 651-989-5855. We've been talking about race and demographic changes that are taking place within the United States and asking the sincere introspective question of how does that make you feel? Are you concerned about the demographic changes that are taking place in the country? Let's talk to Sam in Plymouth. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Um, so I'm not at all concerned with the demographic changes, but I think... My story is I'm a white Muslim, and I have left the left behind mm-hmm. in all ways because of the vitriolicness that they have towards people because of the color of their skin. Mm. And I would rather deal with the bigotry in the Republican Party, as little as there actually is, than deal with being told to shut up because I happen to be pale. You know, it's, it's interesting because I know exactly what you're talking about. I've... I've, I've talked about this before, and it, we need to make it more of a central theme of the program because I think there's a lot to explore in this zone. But, you know, the the, the notion that, and maybe this isn't what you're saying, but but the way I've expressed it is, yes, racism is a thing, but it really doesn't matter that much. It really doesn't matter to the extent that everybody makes it makes it sound like it matters. Like, ultimately, if I encounter another human being, who doesn't like me or who has some sort of prejudicial thoughts about me because of the color of my skin, what have I lost? You know what I'm saying? Like, what have they taken from me? And so to the extent that there is racism or or a prejudice uh, out there in society or even within the circles that I travel in, political or otherwise, I don't find myself feeling threatened by that. By contrast, I'm obviously threatened by the intolerance of the left. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my travels in the Republican sphere so far have not led me to believe that, uh, you know, they reject me for being Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, rather, you know, a lot of the guys with these traits don't show up and don't talk about it. You know, at the RLC convention in the mosque, mm-hmm. nobody showed up with protests and signs saying that Muslims are terrorists. Mm-hmm. You know, meanwhile, if I mentioned one thing about liberty minded politics in a Muslim sphere, the left has so tried to co-opt our community that I'm told to stay in my lane, quote unquote. Right, right. Oh, no, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's something that, listen, you're, you're indicative of the experience. I mean, that's what the walkaway movement is about, right? Is the, the experience, the unsung experience of minorities uh, that, ha- that have been marginalized by the left, which is incredibly ironic given the public face that they would like to present to us, that they're, that they're tolerant. I appreciate the call, Sam. That they're tolerant and that they're embracing and that they're ce- they celebrate differences and diversity when the opposite is true. They're only interested in the veneer of diversity to put on their, their, uh, their lip pieces. Like that's the whole, that's their whole value. It is in building a political coalition, not in actually acknowledging the fact that people have different experiences, different thoughts, different values, and that that's okay, and they ought to be able to live their lives accordingly. We'll continue this fascinating discussion when we return and maybe get into some news. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesTalk.com. right back into it closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 11 30 fm streaming at twincitiesnewstalk.com and on your iheart radio app we're here nine to eleven weeknights appreciate you joining us we've been on every weeknight this week which is uh this is, it's been rare for us but uh, i've enjoyed it we're going to be live and local tomorrow night too so i hope you'll let us take you into the weekend on a friday here on the program 651-989-5855 the number to join us brett Ullman taking those calls and producing the show we've been talking about race and the demographic shifts that are taking place in the country and i haven't even gotten into after an hour of talking with you guys i haven't even gotten into the the piece over at vox written by ezra klein that prompted this discussion we we might get into that here as we move forward but uh, you, you guys keep chiming in and i appreciate that as always, let's go to Jamie in Mankato. Welcome to the program. How's it going? Good. So, um, I wanted to tell you, I grew up in Georgia in an area that was right next to a county that was an all-white county. And I remember as a kid growing up, you'd see people from the KKK out there passing flyers out and you know, foolishness like that. And I remember as a kid not thinking anything about it, not knowing what they were. I just saw them as men in costumes on the corner. Right, right. I remember my dad, my, I remember my dad making a comment about, you know what, son, don't pay any attention to those. Everybody's got an opinion, and it doesn't mean you need to listen to them. Uh-huh. And, you know, he pretty much just explained to me that the people that were that were talking that way were people that were uneducated. Uh-huh. So that Oprah Winfrey ended up going to that county, and she did her little show out there, and that kind of went on for a while. And then time goes on, and 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 uh, I get a church. I'm a white guy, and I've gone to Africa with him a couple times, and some pretty 
heavy hitters, well-known people in the church there. And my job allowed me to be in some rooms and some areas where conversations were going on that weren't meant to be heard from anybody else. And, and one thing I noticed was most of the conversations with the individuals that I was with was about how the white people were trying to keep black people down and that, you know, racism still lives and it's hardcore. And, and I remember thinking, God, I grew up in this county and I didn't know a single person that was in the KKK. Uh-huh. I didn't know anybody that was, you know, you'd hear people making jokes that were, you know, not appropriate. Right, right, and I right, chalked right. that up to absolute lack of education. Mm-hmm. But on the same note, you know, I see it on the other side. And, and I don't, I'm not a racist. I do look at people and I do instantaneously, if we're being honest here. Mm-hmm. You see somebody who's a, who's a small person, you think, well, that's a small person. You see somebody who's a brown person, they're a brown person. You see somebody who's a black, that's a black person. I mean, you, that that is just ingrained in us as human beings, I think. It, it just goes back. There, there, is, there, is a certain, there is a certain kind of natural uh, shorthand, mental shorthand that one goes through just as part of you know processing the world that they live in. Like, we all make snap judgments. We all make prejudicial judgments all the time, every day, and we have to because we only have so much bandwidth in terms of what we can perceive and how quickly we can perceive it. And so it's kind of like this mental shortcut of trying to classify. So when you see somebody who's coming towards you uh, on on the same side of the street, you know, you you go through this quick assessment of threat or not a threat, right? And you know, your your judgment might be completely irrational and subjective and arbitrary but in light of evidence to the contrary that's your judgment now are you is there something wrong with you because of that no now but if in light of evidence you know you you recognize the person is oh yeah that's that's uh, that's bob i know him from work you know and you're still like yeah but i can't trust him he's a little shifty because of how he looks then you might be on to something then you might have a problem but this notion that that there's something inherently wrong with having a snap judgment about somebody, you know, when all you know, you know that phrase "don't judge a book by its cover," well, okay, but when you all you've seen is the cover, <laughs> you haven't had the opportunity to turn the page. That's all you've got to go on. Well, one thing that one thing that really can well, I don't, it doesn't concern me, but you know, not all, and maybe I'm the only individual on the planet that thinks this way, but not all snap judgments are negative. I don't always look at somebody and go, up oh, there's right. a black right. guy, he's going to be this way, or there's a right, 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 right. guy, or there's a woman, right. or there's this or that, and they're going to be this. I don't, I'm just looking to size it up to see how I'm going to fit into the situation. Right. How am right. I going to, is this somebody that, you know, and, and again, it's not necessarily color, it's also culture. Yeah. And just right. because one person agrees or likes a certain culture doesn't mean that they don't like them because right. they're black or white. It's just, hey, I don't like that kind of music. That, right, right, right. You know, a lot of people, like, uh, people from Georgia get stereotyped as hillbillies that listen to, you know, hillbilly music. Well, that's, that's, right. not, that's not true, sure. you know. Sure, So to sort of size that up, and, 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 I, and then as I get older, I'm hearing this stuff in the church, I started asking myself, and I don't, I'm still trying to formulate an opinion on this if I even need to, but it kind of does bother me that there's all black colleges, there's all black magazines, there's, there's a lot of extra special attention that goes to support.
support helping the black community come out of the stigma of all that other junk, uh-huh. if that makes any sense. And no, I understand I what you're saying. I go, so is that fair? Is it not fair? Is it... Is it addressing the root problem? Is it addressing? Is it address? Is it solving a problem? Is there a problem that needs to be solved by that? I suppose is well, one my way. My thought is, is if 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 there's all black colleges, why aren't there all Hispanic colleges or right. all white colleges right, right, or right. all white magazines or all Hispanic or what's and or if, another if way to phrase it is what what's the inherent value? Care. Yeah, what what's the inherent value in an all r- r- one race college, a mono race college, you know, so to speak? I appreciate the call, Jamie. I appreciate the thoughts. Let's go to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So I think the issue isn't has nothing to do with race or national origin or anything like that. I think it has to do with culture and and the idea that there are people who want to give towards the world and people who want to take away from the world. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's what it is. And, and I think that's the, di- the fundamental difference from Republicans. They want to give towards the world. They want people to be, they want to be able to do want to do, how they want to do it, because they can take care of themselves. And, and Democrats who want you to have to rely on them so they can dictate to you how you should live your life. Mm-hmm. I think that's the main difference in all of them. And, and, and if you look at the, the Democrats, right, right. How, many, how many people do you see in upper leadership that are black or brown? Sure. There's, there's, you go Minnesota, you go New Jersey, you go down south, most of them are white. Old white people who were around in the 60s right. who were, were causing those problems right. that those people really had. Mm-hmm. A legitimate defense. What? What? what are, why is this? Why are we even allowing them to have to come at us this way? That's what I don't understand. I appreciate the call, Barry. Appreciate the thoughts. All right, let's dive a little bit into this piece by Ezra Klein over at Vox that got this whole conversation started or got me thinking along these lines. Uh, Ezra Klein writes: In 2008, Barack Obama held up change as a beacon attaching to it another word, a word that channeled everything his young and diverse coalition saw in his rise and their newfound political power. Hope. An America that would elect a black man president was an America in which a future was being written that could read thrillingly different from our past. In 2016, Donald Trump wielded that same sense of change as a threat. He was the uh, revenished voice of those who yearned to make America the way it was before, to make it great again. That was the impulse that connected the wall to keep Mexicans out, the ban to keep Muslims away, the birtherism meant to prove Obama couldn't possibly be a legitimate president. An America that would elect Donald Trump president was an America in which a future was being written that could read thrillingly similar to our past. This is the core cleavage of our politics, and it reflects the fundamental reality of our era. America is changing and fast. According to the Census Bureau, 2013 marked the first year that a majority of U.S. infants under the age of one were non-white. The announcement made during the second term of the nation's first African-American president was not a surprise. Demographers have been predicting such a tipping point for years, and they foresaw more to come. 
The government predicts that in 2030, immigration will overtake new births as the dominant driver of population growth. About 15 years after that, America will phase into majority-minority status, which means for the first time in the nation's history, non-Hispanic whites will no longer make up a majority of the population. That cross will come in part because America's black, Hispanic, Asian, and mixed-race populations are expected to grow. Indeed, the Hispanic and Asian populations are expected to roughly double, and the mixed-race population to triple. Meanwhile, the non-Hispanic white population is uniquely expected to fall, dipping from 199 million in 2020 to 179 million in 2060. The Census Bureau minces no words here. The only group projected to shrink is the non-Hispanic white population, they report. This isn't just a statement about the future. It's a description of the present. The economist Jed Kolko notes that the most common age for white Americans is 58. For Asians, it's 29. For African Americans, it's 27. And for Hispanics, it's 11. A new report out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Applied Population Lab found that white births are now outnumbered by white deaths in 26 states, up from 17 in 2014 and 4 in 2004. So in 26 states, there are more white people dying than there are being born. Meanwhile, America's foreign-born population is predicted to rise from 14% of the population today to 17% in 2060, two percentage points above the record set in 1890. The rise has been staggering in its speed. As recently as the 1970s, America's foreign-born population was under 5%. And so, you know, th- th- this is, these are the, the dynamics that are laid out by Ezra Klein. And then he goes into his analysis of what, how this translates into our modern moment in politics. And his basic thesis is that there is a, a sense of fear amongst a dwindling white population that they are losing their privileged status in society. And so the question that I'm putting to you sincerely is, is, is there any inkling of that in your soul? Do you have a sense of apprehension that you're being crowded out by the brown folks. And and if so, you know, if if there is some degree of that, you know, do, do you how how are you dealing with it? And what effect do do you think it's going to have on politics going forward? Now, I don't want I I hate to put all of this on Lena and Grand Forks, but uh, we will take her call and yours when we return 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been talking about the demographic shifts that are taking place within the United States the the so-called majority minority status that uh, we are barreling toward wherein non-hispanic whites will become a minority within the United States and it's only a matter of time it is going to happen it's it's we already passed the point in 2013 where there were uh, more um, babies being born um, that fit that description than uh, babies being born amongst the 
non-Hispanic white population. So how does that make you feel? Is there something, is there a appropriate reaction or a legitimate concern born out of that demographic shift? And, you know, probably more relevant to the particular moment, are, is this defining, does this have some defining aspect upon our, our modern politics? Let's see what Lena has to say in Grand Forks. That's all. That's a lot of uh, heavy expectation to put upon you, but there you go. Oh, that's okay. I'm used to it. Um, so I am not afraid of losing my privilege because, as a reasonably attractive young female, I can never lose my privilege. That's just <laughs> a fact of biology. Um, but regarding white privilege specifically, I have never felt like I had it, and mm. maybe that in itself is a privilege. Um, but I, a, a conversation I've had with my brother many times because we both have lived in the Twin Cities for different amounts of time, mm-hmm. is if you were to envision a classroom full of people, I feel like if you don't actually know anyone in the classroom, you would naturally gravitate to the person who's most like you. I would most want to sit beside another white female. My brother mm-hmm. would most want to sit beside another white male. Mm-hmm. And I think the same would true, be true if you're a black male walking into a room of white people, right. you'd probably gravitate towards a black person. Right. And I just think that's tribalism. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's sure. biological safety. Huh. Um, but as someone who has worked retail the majority of my adult life, and I've also been to several different colleges, um, it is absolutely the choices that people make that make me feel uncomfortable or comfortable around them. Hmm. It's the clothing, it's the word choice that they have, it's the way right. they talk to me and treat me, and the word choice they choose to use when referring to me. Right. That is what makes me feel okay or not around them. Like sure. where I work right now, absolutely some of my favorite regular customers are people who are not the same race as me. But it's because they treat me well and they're respectful and they treat me like a person. Right. And that's it's as simple as that. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting because, you know, as somebody who grew up as in literally the odd man out, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in predominantly white communities and went to predominantly white schools and, you know, and myself not white. Maybe that explains why I'm, you know, I mean, you wouldn't know it by the fact that I'm a talk radio host, but I really am pretty introverted. Like, I don't. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a small talker. I don't like getting into to <laughs> small talk and personal conversations with people that I don't know. Maybe yeah. that's partially explained by the fact that I didn't have, I, I never really felt that sense of biological connection to the people around me and just kind of wanted to be left alone. <laughs> well, something I've thought about a lot is how, so I was, I was born deaf. And so mm-hmm. it was several several years in public school until I was at the grade average where I could even be in the same classroom as the other students during certain subjects. Yeah. And so that made me feel super isolated. Sure. So I assume the same feeling of isolation could apply to different circumstances. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to, to recognize because you know, what you're, what you're referring to, I, I think there is a biological component to it that, that, that makes a fair amount of sense. It's, it's this idea of familiarity. You know, this the sense that I have a link with this person because we have something in common and I'm going to stick with what I know rather than than risk dealing with the unknown. You know, there's it's it's a very basic kind of instinctual sort of sort of herd mentality thing, which isn't necessarily in and of itself negative. It's just a place from which you start. And then, you know, the question is, where do you once you engage your intellect? Where do you go from there? And I think that's the dividing line between the people who are who are racists versus people who are just human beings experiencing the world as they find it. Appreciate the call, Lena. All right. So 
Let's get into uh, some some uh, new stuff. Now, we, th- this conversation, in part, has been born from the, the news this week in the Blevins shooting. The release of the dash cam, or I keep referred to it as dash cam, the body cam footage. And the announcement by Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman that he wasn't going to pursue charges against these cops. And, you know, part of the the complaints that have been forwarded by critics of the police and critics of this particular shooting is that, you know, they shot Blevins as he was running away. And I don't know where this this idea comes from that people have that, like, the only way you can... You can shoot somebody as if they're actively charging at you with guns blazing, like two guns matrix style coming directly at you or or wielding a knife or a machete or something like that's the only circumstance under which it's ever appropriate to utilize lethal force. But it's it's actually there's a there's a broad range of situations where lethal force is completely appropriate. It's called the use of force continuum, and you always want to make sure that. It, for your own safety and the safety of others, you're using a higher level of force than the person you're dealing with. You know, it's the proverbial don't bring a knife to a gunfight scenario. If you come to a fight and it is a fair fight, your tactics suck. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and there's a piece over here at Vice News that kind of explores this in terms of, you know, the question they ask is when can cops legally shoot someone running away from them? And uh, they have this to say. Police officers start pursuing a suspect on foot, sometimes with their hands on their holsters or with their guns drawn. At some point, one fires at the suspect, who then collapses to the ground. It's happened to Stephen Clark in Sacramento, California, Maurice Granton in Chicago, Illinois, and Walter Scott in Charleston, South Carolina. And because of the ubiquity of body cameras, dash cameras, and bystander footage, their shootings were all caught on video. 88 of the 584 people killed by police so far this year were running away from officers, according to data collected by the Washington Post. But whether police can legally shoot a fleeing suspect depends on a patchwork of state laws governing the use of lethal force. Police can generally shoot to kill if they reasonably fear for their lives or the safety of others, but specific circumstances like whether the suspect was armed or had a violent criminal history also affects if the officer can be held liable in many cases. For years, cops had to demonstrate they had probable cause to believe a a suspect was dangerous before using deadly force, but a landmark Supreme Court case in 1989 changed all that. In a 6-3 decision, the justices determined officers could shoot to kill if they reasonably feared for their lives, a lower and more subjective standard. States, however, still have the power to set their own laws governing when police can use deadly force. Right now, 42 states have a total of 58 different statutes, according to Seth Stratton, a former police officer and assistant professor at the University of South Carolina's School of Law. The majority of laws align with the Supreme Court standard, but some states give police even more leeway. Florida's criminal code, for example, has what's called a fleeing felon law which gives cops the legal authority to use deadly force if they need to stop someone who's committed a felony from escaping arrest. That rule doesn't align with the 1985 Supreme Court decision or a 1985 Supreme Court decision where justices concluded police cannot shoot fleeing suspects specifically unless they pose a threat to their life or someone else's. And they go on here to describe the situation in different states. And, you know, the, the thing that comes to mind as I consider this 
this question of, you know, is it okay for a cop to shoot somebody who's fleeing? I think, you know, it's something that we need to spend more than five minutes thinking about. But I start here. When I start thinking about it, I start here. When somebody makes the decision that they're going to run from the cops, what do we know about that person? Like, what, what, what's, what does that indicate strongly? If, it's some, if somebody, when they're commanded by the cops to, hey, stop, put your hands up, drop your weapon, and their response is to turn and run, what can we reasonably assume about them? I, maybe, maybe put the question a different way. Under what circumstances would it be rational and appropriate to run from the cops? I can't immediately come to a, a defensible answer to that question. And I think somewhere in there, somewhere in that observation, there is a principle that ought to inform our thinking on this this question of when it's appropriate for an officer to use lethal force. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. I'm not able to decode this Twitter algorithm of how they come up with the things that end up in my news feed. Now, it was before it was politics and Star Trek, which at least makes sense, because to varying degrees, I'm into both of those. But there's a whole batch of posts now about dead British actresses. And I don't, I don't understand, like, is this, is it trying to tell me something? Is this like looking into, you know, some sort of crystal ball of your, your psyche that it's like palm reading or something? Mm, I don't think Twitter is as good as Facebook. At, at figuring at, that stuff out? Yeah. Huh. Just absolutely random. I've, I've just seen it be random. I've never noticed like, oh, I'm really interested in that. Let me click on that story. So I don't Gotcha. Know. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. We'll be live and local tomorrow night as well. We'll be doing Freestyle Friday where we open it up to whatever you want to talk about. So be sure to join us going into your weekend. 651-989-5855 is the number to do so. Brad Olin takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk to Kevin in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. I can take your speakerphone, Walter. I'm a little bit nervous now. That's all right. You don't have to. Uh, don't have to worry. We're low key here on the program. At least I am tonight. And Last night I was pretty revved up. Years. And and I, and I just got. A, I just got. A, I got a problem with you. Not not a problem with you, but you you you're educated. And you speak very good. You got very fluent words, right? And and then I'm um, like, you hurt my feelings. I was listening to to you about a month or so ago when the Philando uh, when the Philando Castle case. When I called in to you and I talked to you. You kind of brushed that off and justified that. And, like, right now I'm hearing you. I understand that you got a job to do, but I feel that you catering. You, you guys lost touch with reality when you could justify shooting a man in the back. I don't care what color he is running away. That's gone too far. I understand you have a job to do, but I didn't even realize you was black until you said it three weeks ago that you were black, man. You don't speak up. I understand that you, you have your certain rights or you feel the way you do and you live in your world and you deal with the people that you do, but you are black regardless how you speak or what you say. You are black. You need to start standing up for black people sometimes, 
Sometimes, just a little bit. So, okay, it's so what part, what a, part, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Shoot up running. It, it is absolutely wrong to shoot a man in the back that's running from you. And okay, no, look, listen, hold on, hold on, let's calm down, calm down, let's take this one step at a time. And I heard you over the radio justify that. And it's not justified, you wasn't going to get against it. I mean, I, my, I, my, well, my words aren't as fluent as yours and this and that, but I, I'm all right and like too, and I don't never, and I'll never forget where my roots come from. It, 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 you can't forget that. I'm trying, perhaps you could help me understand. No, I, 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 listen, you just don't have no, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't focus, you don't have no feelings, you don't even speak. So like with Philando Castle, I've been knowing him since he was 12 years old. He was gunned down on camera. You, just, you didn't even speak up for that. You didn't, you know, you, it didn't like right down with, with the Minneapolis shooting, with the police shooting. You're sitting up here around all these white folks trying to justify a black man getting shot in the back. I'm not trying to justify you're, anything. No, I'm calling it like I see it. it. I'm calling it like I see it. You what are, about, when you talk about what it is. How is it racism? And, and, and then, and then, uh, Hold on, sorry, let's take this. We, we, I've been listening for you for like 20 years. And, and then you said, I've been on for one, but okay. They're going to deal with the population change. This is how they're doing with it. They're locking us up, they're shooting us. Okay, That's so I, the, the I, I legitimately, change, I, I really want to, this, this could potentially be a productive conversation. So I want to try to have it. Now, what you had said is that. You, it, you should not be able, or police should not be able to shoot a man, a black man, in nobody. the back. Police, now, nobody. Okay. Shoot a man right. in the back, running away. Now, I agree. Now, I agree. Like, I agree. Wrong, With that wrong, statement. There's no justifying that. I don't care how you see it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Hold on. When you add circumstances to the picture you're painting, you, you absolutely can justify it. It's wrong to shoot a man in the back. <clears throat> okay. So, when the man in question has a gun... He's running away so as you're commanding him to... St that officer's life was not in danger. He was chasing that man. He was a prey. He was a predator. He wasn't a prey. He was chasing that man. And if you're that, that, yeah, What is his that, job? That is his job to let him go? Should he, have, should he have let him go? Get another job. Kevin. Kevin. Are you sincerely? I don't care if you. All right, I, we got it. We got it. I don't give a damn if I hate you. I was willing to. I was willing to talk to you, but you got to keep the language under control. And that's not me. That's the FCC. All right. I. I. I'm putting in as much effort as I can here. I let him get his word in. I. I. He interrupted me several times. I'm asking simple, basic questions. But here's the distinction. And now you got to listen to it. With not being able to respond, Kevin. And maybe this is him trying to call back, but you know we're not gonna we're not gonna put you on after you violate the FCC rules. Um, but my sincere question is, how, what do you expect a police officer to do when they're called to an active shooter, to somebody who is firing off their gun randomly in the air and, to, and into the ground in a residential neighborhood, and they show up and they find a guy who matches the description with a gun visible in his pocket sitting on a curb next to a woman and child who, and that's, and they don't know any of the circumstances other than what they've been told. And they get out of the car and they command him to put his hands up and to drop his weapon and his reaction is to bolt. You tell me, Kevin, you tell me the rest of the world, what were they supposed to do 
in that situation other than what they did. And there seems to be, and I understand, I understand the personal connection to Philando Castile. I understand the, the personal sense of historic oppression. And I, I, I don't, what I, what I don't understand is this argument that my roots are supposed to have some effect upon how I perceive reality. I, there's nothing about my roots. There's nothing about who my dad was that changes what happened with Thurman Blevins and the Minneapolis Police Department. Like, what happened happened. It was what it was. And who I am and the color of my skin and the color of my dad's skin has nothing to do with the facts of the case, the facts of the situation. And it's pretty ludicrous to suggest that I ought to alter my perception of reality based upon nothing but the color of my skin. I don't understand this argument. Calling into question, yeah, you know, bringing up the fact that I can string two words together almost as a disqualifier. Like, oh, you can talk, so I, so, so, that, so my opinion doesn't count? I, I don't understand. He all but said you're not black enough is basically what's being inferred. Not black enough to have an opinion on this, on this situation. I don't know, man. I, it's, I wish we could have kept him on. I wish he could have kept his language under control because I really would have liked to have explored uh, his, his thought process and, and genuinely understand it better. I want to understand it because I don't. We'll talk to Chris and Derek when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. It's interesting. You know, we just had this call from Kevin, who's black, who called in to, you know, basically read me the riot act because I'm not standing up for black suspects who are shot by police officers because apparently I have some sort of ancestral obligation to think a certain way. Well, and he was applying it to like all police shootings, and that's the problem that I've seen in the arguments even that I've made about this Blevins case specifically is I still think there's, and maybe you do to some extent too, that there's still room for questioning in our views about the Blevins case don't necessarily apply to everything else. Well, yeah, it's it's a case by case basis, which is kind of my point is that the the notion that look, one of the things that Kevin said was, I didn't even realize you were black. I've been listening to you however long, and you know, I just heard you say you were black. I didn't even realize it. That what good? Like what? What do you? Why should it be apparent? based upon what I think that I'm a certain race. Like, is it, isn't that what we want? Don't we want a society where race is not a, a set of beliefs or a set of behaviors or something that you could figure out without looking at a person? Like, shouldn't it be irrelevant to your thoughts and your principles and your values and your conduct? Shouldn't race be an afterthought, a, an asterisk? I thought that was the point. I thought that's what MLK was getting after when he talked about a world where you're judged by the content of your character instead of the color of your skin. Isn't that quite literally what it means that you can listen to a guy talk on the radio and not know what color he is? Isn't that the objective? Apparently not. Let's let's see what you guys have to say. Chris in Minneapolis, welcome to the program. Chris, how you doing? 
All right, we'll move on to who's next here. Derek in St. Paul. Welcome. Uh, how you doing, bro, man? Doing all right. Hey, man, I've been listening to you since you've been on, you know? I appreciate and that. I appreciate everything you um, stand for. And and as far as the black man, you know, you do very well, man. But um, Kevin, man, he's just so emotional about things that's going on in the black community. That's what I feel. You yeah. know, it's all these shootings, man. And, you know, most of them may be justified, but, you know, it's to the point now people are so upset. It happens so much, and the, and the cops getting away with it. See, that's the problem. That even if it's justified, when it's not justified, they still get away with it. So it's a lot of, you know, built-up emotions from shooting. So every time this happens, it, it, you know, it just it makes people real emotional. So it's, we, so it's, I know so, they're going to get away with it. You so know? you kind of hear what I'm hearing you evoke is kind of like the oj effect of yeah we know he did it but he should get off as as a form of kind of like uh, i don't yeah justice through osmosis like if he gets off then that somehow makes up for white people getting off in the past oh man yeah yeah i mean it's just you know we you know we, we gotta look at all the situations you know like that shoot in Chicago, you know, the guy shot the guy 16 times, but they got him for murder. But, I mean, when it's going to Okay, well, it sounds like justice was served. I mean, these prosecutors, you know, these ADAs, I understand they have a job to do, too. Right. But, you know, I I just don't see nothing changing, man. I and your pre- last comment was um, about how he felt that he didn't know you was black. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That shouldn't make a difference. You know what I mean? I do, and I appreciate your thoughts. I appreciate you calling the program. I appreciate you listening all this time. Hope you'll yep. continue to do so. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome. So I'm not black. I'm white. So let's just start there. But I sympathize with, with these feelings about how these people, the black people are being, being shot or anybody being shot in the back. I sympathize with it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is, is they're working on two different world views. We're working on the view that this is the way the world is. Cops can pull you over for a broken tail light. Mm-hmm. You can make make bad decisions and end up shot mm-hmm. by making those bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Now we don't think that it's okay for somebody to get shot because they have a broken tail light. And in fact, we believe that the cops shouldn't even pull them over simply because they had a tail light, sure. broken right. tail light. Yeah. But that's not the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And and the world we live in, we've given cops this power to be able to do this. Now, instead of them pushing against the cops, they should be pushing towards changing the rules that cops have. You know, we only enforce force laws that, like, rape, murder, right. that, that if you had a bad interaction with the cop and you end up shot because of it, well, you shouldn't have done what you did in the first place because they went to let them. So, yeah. that's... I, I that's the problem. I want to try to squeeze in some other calls, but I appreciate what you're saying, Barry, and I, I agree that there there's room for fundamental change in the law itself that could address that could reduce the opportunities for these types of confrontations. But I guarantee you, you know, whatever that criminal justice reform includes, we're never going to get to a point where it's okay to be drunk and shooting your gun off in the sky in the middle of a Minneapolis residential neighborhood. So, you know, the Blevins thing was going to happen no matter what. Let's go to Leland in Minneapolis quick. Well, uh, my uh, cousin, Ken Norton, 
played Mandingo in the movie. I hope that qualifies me to be black enough. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, say the, the Blevins had gotten off that shot and he missed. Uh-huh. What if there was another black person in the community that had caught that shot right. and he missed it? Right, right, right. What if he had grabbed a hostage and maybe the hostage might be one of the family members of the guy, the brother that had called in? Right. You know, uh, uh, I my friend invited me to help him uh, watch his house while he went to Alaska. And everybody that lived there was Caucasian. Uh-huh. So I went to go house set, but they were into drinking and drugs. And so he asked me to watch his house. The police showed up while I was there, and they said that they had been there earlier, and there was a guy there. They had a warrant. They needed to get him. So they took him. He was a Caucasian guy. Louis there was Caucasian. They took him. So then the guy, the guy come back, and he said, well, we want to check that girl because see if she's got any warrants. So they came in and they got the girl. They took them out, and the cop came back. He said, well, we're taking them because they got warrants, and so you have a good day. So I stood there and waited, and he went, and then, I don't know, about five minutes later, he came back. He said, you know, he said, my partner wants us to check to see if you have a warrant and have your name. I told him my name. He came back. He said, well, everything's good. You're clear. Uh, you have a good day. And he left. Uh-huh. Last Saturday, I'm out there, and I'm cleaning this uh, pod for this 84-year-old Caucasian woman moving her stuff over to permanent storage. There's all kinds of white people walking past, and it's on a Saturday. Ten seconds. Going over there. And this one black guy walks by, and he stops, and he's staring at me, and I turn around, and he's looking like, why are you in that pod? You know, are you stealing something? And I turn around, and I say, excuse me, sir, can I help you? But it was him stereotyping black-on-black stereotype. Right. I appreciate the, I appreciate the story, Leland. It would have been nice to flesh that out. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. <laughs>